Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, Episode 71. In this episode, I'll discuss about quantitative easing and why we simply can't print money, and why is it relevant during this COVID-19 crisis and what the government has done in terms of stimulus packages. I also want to give a six-month update on my Tesla Model 3. If you haven't listened to my original podcast, which was uh, the economics of EV vehicles, I think it's worthwhile going back and listening to it because I made some predictions about potential savings that I'll have as a result of ditching my ICE car, which is my internal combustion engine car, which was a very efficient European diesel car, to be honest. And um, since that episode, I've had a few requests out there to publish a six-month review of the Model 3 from a cost of ownership and cost of running point of view. So I thought um, I thought I'd include that as part of this episode. And I know since that episode, a few of you have actually gone out and bought the car. So congratulations, um, and I hope you're loving it as much as I am. Now, for those of you that are new to the Devraga Personal Finance channel, the aim here is threefold. Number one is to educate. I want to be able to educate everyone about personal finance concepts, investing concepts, economic concepts debt concepts, and savings concepts. And I want you to be empowered with the knowledge that you gain from this podcast episodes and hopefully go and do your own research and try and apply it every day to your personal financial situation. And of course, the third principle is to entertain. I want to make bad jokes, which you don't laugh at, um, and that way we can all have fun together. Now, remember, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a financial planner. So make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate advisors and, you know, not listen to some random guy um, yapping on about on a podcast channel. Now, if you're stuck on what to do and if you're new to this channel, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside, and that is your pay yourself money. Why 20%? I've worked out that 20% is achievable, is not unrealistic, but anything less than that doesn't make it your worthwhile to do it in the long term. But anything I feel is better than nothing. So if you can't do 20% initially, that's okay. Do 5%, 10%, whatever you can, and then work your way up to that 20% figure. Step two, invest that money. Ideally, something that you understand in or want to understand in. I just invest in index funds because my profession is I'm a healthcare worker. I'm not a financial advisor. So I'm not a day trader. So... 
I don't have the expertise in doing all that. I just find that investing in a well-known low-cost index fund, which is broadly diversified in the Australian Stock Exchange, is probably the best way to go for me. And you need to work that out for yourself. Step three, reinvest those dividends. So when you make investments, you've got to make investments in things that pay you money in addition to increasing its own value. So the power of compounding by reinvesting dividends is very, very real. So that's one of the reasons why I don't invest in cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency is one of those things, if I buy it, it doesn't pay me anything every year. It doesn't pay me dividends. Sure, in 10, 50 years, whatever it is, it might go up in value or go down in value, and that's entirely speculative. I tend not to invest in things that are purely speculation because I might as well go to the casino and gamble. Step four, always do it for the long term. That is 20, 30, 40 plus years. So if you're in your 20s listening to this, take the concepts, learn and start investing now. So people ask me all the time, when is the best time to invest? Well, I don't believe in timing the market. I believe in time in the market, which means the best time to invest is when you have some spare money. And the best time to invest is when you're debt free. And step five, automate those investments. That's my favorite step. That means taking the principles of step ones to four and automating it and finding a way to do it automatically so that you don't have to think about it. There's less chances of error. There's less chances of forgetting it. And that way, one day you wake up after 30, 40 years and you'll have more money than you'll probably ever need. Now, remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life and most importantly, the people people around you make their lives as pleasurable and as enjoyable as possible. Now, before the main topic, here are some stats with the Tesla Model 3. I know a few of you have been waiting for this, and I've already given a sneak preview in my uh, Facebook channel already, and also my personal Facebook page and the uh, Car Loving Doctors page. So um, thank you very much for those comments and messages. Now, first of all, in the six months that I've owned it, um, I've actually owned it for about seven months, but I've taken about three weeks in conference and uh, holidays, which the car has been idle. So, you know, let's make it six months to make it easier. Has it faulted in terms of mechanical or electrical problems? What has the reliability been? And the answer is no, it hasn't faulted. Uh, there has been some minor software glitches and problems uh, which needed to be fixed, but it just so happened that I just restarted the car, just like restarting your iPhone or your smartphone or your laptop. And after the software updates, it kind of just magically fixed itself. So basically the way the car works is that you use the car, you come home, you plug it in, just like you plug in your laptop or your iPhone. And then I've got it set to 11.30 p.m. charge because that's, in my area, that's the um, uh, low rates uh, because I'm on off-peak uh, plans with my electricity company. Um, and it basically at 11.30, it just switches on and starts charging and then downloads any relevant software updates for that day. Since I've purchased the car, there's been about six or seven software updates and these are all free and they're over the air. So basically it does it over the Wi-Fi in the home network. So the car automatically connects to my home Wi-Fi network as I approach the house. Um, you can get a, uh, um, a hardware called Homelink, which you can install in the car, which communicates with your garage. And as you enter the driveway, it automatically opens the garage. I haven't done that because sometimes I enter the driveway and I don't actually park the car indoors. 
Now, so it hasn't really faltered. I have to say I'm really, really impressed with the reliability of Tesla. I was a bit worried because it's a relatively new company, especially in Australia, um, but I was actually quite pleasantly surprised. And it's only been six months. So let's see what happens over the next sort of three to five years that I hope to be owning the Model 3. Has range been a problem? These are all common questions that I get asked all the time. Um, and there's a bit of, you know, battery degradation. So um, I've lost about 20 to 25 kilometers of range so far in 60 months. Oh, sorry, in six months, beg your pardon, not 60 months. Um, and that's quite common. If you do a bit of research about EVs, the first 12 months, the battery degradation tends to be the greatest, which is marginal, really, to be honest, which is not, it's really negligible. 25Ks is not much, and it doesn't really affect me. Um, but over the 12 months, I expect a bit more degradation. And then what happens is it tends to plateau. So has range been a problem? Not really. I drive about 180 to 250 kilometers on any given day. Um, I pump the car up to about 90% every day, and I get about 310 to 325 um, kilometer range. Um, and then maximum I've got is about 360-odd kilometers from 100%. So in an ice car, you would tend to fill up the tank, and you'd run it dry and then fill it up again. In an electric car, you don't do that. You plug it every day. In fact, Tesla recommend that you plug it in, even if you don't use the car. So to leave the car unplugged is not great for battery preservation. Now, how many kilometers have I done in six months? Just yesterday, my odometer switched over to 30,000 kilometers, which is significant. So I'm on track to doing about 60 to 70,000 kilometers this year. Now, that's pretty high-level driving. And have I serviced it? Well, no, there isn't any service to do. I was actually quite surprised, and I was scouring the manual and scouring online forums. I think the first service is probably due about forty or 60,000 kilometers, um, and that too, it's not much. They just check the um, filtration system of the air conditioner and do a few little nitbits, but nothing major to service. So, no, I haven't serviced the car. I've pumped the tires up once in that six months. Um, I've um, changed the windshield wiper fluid about four or five times over the six months. Uh, this was all done by me. So the service is zero. Now, I have cracked the windshield uh, once already, uh, which I've got replaced, which was a bit of a big process. Um, so O'Brien's in uh, Victoria don't touch Teslas for some weird reason. They think, um, you know, they, they think it can only be done by Tesla. So uh, Tesla replaced the windshield for me, free, of course, because my insurance, which I'm with GIO, thank you, GIO, um, paid for the uh, chipped windscreen. Um, and because there's a bit of complexities of the cameras, I think the car has three cameras up front and five cameras around and et cetera, et cetera. So this is the excuse that O'Brien gave me. I wasn't sure whether that was accurate or not. But anyway, Tesla did it for me. Um, basically, what happened was I was driving and a stone flicked in from a, a truck from in front of me and that chipped the windshield. And it was just a bit of a mild crack. And of course, because it was on the edge of the windshield, uh, you have to replace the entire windshield. Um, so it, 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 interestingly, every car that I've owned ever, I've always cracked the windshield in the first 12 months. So I'm not really sure why that is. That seems to be the practice of Devraga's driving skills. So I suppose you don't want to come as a passenger in my car in the first 12 months of ownership. Um, now, the total fuel use, this is where it gets interesting. So as of 30,000 kilometers in terms of odometer reading, 
The total fuel used, that is the kilowatts used to power the Tesla, has been 4,350 kilowatts. Uh, and the cost um, has been, this is the breakdown of the cost, right? One kilowatt of energy uh, in the battery is taking me around six kilometers, roughly, or six to seven kilometers. Um, and I do a lot of driving in the city, country, freeway, wet, cold, rain, slippery, foggy, mountainous, etc. So I don't do any off-road driving because this is a sedan. So obviously I'm not going to take it mountain, you know, mountain driving, but, um, but I do hilly driving. So rural areas, up and down hills all the time, always on tarmac roads. That's what I'm trying to say. So I don't take it off-road. Now at about 15 cents per kilowatt hour, which is what my cost is of electricity off-peak, the total cost of that, uh, of 4,350 kilowatts, is around $652. So I predicted a little bit higher, so it's actually come uh, at a significantly lower cost than what I anticipated. Now, I've calculated that about 40% of my charging is actually done at my destination. Public charges, um, etc. Um, public charges, etc. So essentially, um, what I've noticed is that uh, that my actual cost to run this car uh, to about 30,000 um, kilometers in the odometer has been about $391.20. So if I had my um, very fuel-efficient diesel vehicle, it would have cost me around $2,625 uh, to drive the exact 30,000 uh, kilometers. So that's on premium uh, diesel um, which was around $70 per tank, mm -hmm. adjusted for current cost of diesel. Um, and also, that gives me about 800 kilometers per tank. That's roughly what I average. Sometimes I've got about 900, sometimes I've got about 700, but about 800 seems to be the sweet spot with my previous European diesel car. Now, in the six months, my diesel car would have been serviced once at least. It was a twice-yearly service, and I looked at my service bills, which was around $500 on average, um, which would have been required to be spent on the service. So, um, of course, no service required for my Model 3. So, putting up the numbers, I've already saved around $2,733.80 in fuel costs already, plus service costs, and I've also factored in the lower price of diesel these past few weeks. In fact, I haven't priced in the diesel when I bought the car. I've priced in what it's been in the last sort of few weeks because of the COVID crisis, okay? So, I'm I'm looking at the worst case scenario. I'm, I'm I'm putting all my bets against my Model Three, and it still comes out on top, which is what really surprised me. So this equates to a yearly basis of five thousand four hundred and sixty-seven dollars and sixty cents in fuel savings and service savings, and I'm not even getting started with the um, more service um, costs associated with the diesel car and repairs. So things like brake pads and uh, brake fluids and all that sort of stuff. Because remember, the Tesla has regenerative braking. I I hardly use my brakes. So there's, there's a function in this Model 3 called the hold function, where basically it comes to a complete stop if I let go of the accelerator. It gets a little bit of getting used to, but I've just found this an incredibly uh, pleasurable experience to the point that when I drive my wife's ICE car, we still have an ICE Mazda CX-9, which we'll probably will get rid of in the near future, uh, when I let go of the steering wheel, the kids scream because I assume the car's going to slow down, but obviously it doesn't. It hurdles towards the traffic lights, so it's a bit of a bit of a getting used to. Now I'm so used to driving the Tesla that I find it a little bit difficult and annoying to drive the ice cars. So there you go. So my original estimate 
of saving around $5,000 to $6,000 per year, roughly, in terms of savings, was rather spot on if I factored in wear and tear, servicing, cost of repairs, etc. There aren't many parts in electric vehicles to break. So that's the other advantage. Um, So what does this translate to in the long term, right? You know I'm a long-term investor. So as you know, I simply invest that extra money into the index funds. I'm not going to spend that extra $5,500 that I've saved. I'm going to put it into the index funds and assume a rate of return of about 8%. And I would have an extra $750,000 in my portfolio. And if I'm half wrong, that's still a cool $375,000 in my portfolio. And this car cost me about $66,000 in terms of my base price to buy. So for a $66,000 investment, potentially I'm getting about three quarter of a million dollars in portfolio returns. Now, Yes, a car is a depreciating asset. I haven't factored in the depreciating costs and all that sort of stuff. But I've sort of, you know, negated all that because the Tesla, in my experience, depreciates a lot better than even a Mercedes-Benz, which is interesting. Um, So I've sort of lifted all that. So if I took that into account, I'm pretty confident the Tesla would come on top. Now, am I a Tesla fanboy? No. One of the reasons why I bought this car was because I like technology I like driving. I do a lot of driving. I needed something with autopilot. Um, So that's why I bought this car. But it just so turned out that when I did my research and started doing investigation about the cost of ownership of a Tesla versus my previous European ICE car, the Tesla almost at every turn just came out to be cheaper. So then I said to myself, why would I spend money and waste money on a car that doesn't give me all the features when I can buy a car which may be a little bit more expensive to buy, but it saves me money in the five years of ownership that I'm going to be expected to own this car. And that's the reason why I bought it. The main reason why I bought it was because of the economic advantages of driving an electric vehicle. Then you can buy a Kona or Kia Nero or whatever you want, but I just find the economics of electric vehicles for me, for the amount of driving that I do, just makes absolute sense. So, uh, you know, this is coming from someone who drives about a thousand kilometers a week so you've got to take that into account so range is not a problem i don't think the majority of aussies drive more than about 50 to 60 kilometers per day i drive about 180 to 250 a day and this is the only car that i've ever driven in my life which actually gets cheaper every year to run so in the above calculations i haven't included one very important factor and that is i've actually got solar panels in my house And during summer, um, I used my solar panels to, you know, generate enough electricity to power some of the input into my car. So I'm assuming that I've used all of my electricity from the grid. But on hot days, of course, I tend to maximize my electricity. uh, Sorry, my electricity generation is maximized. I produce about sort of 40 to 45 kilowatts per day. Um, And we know that the Tesla Model 3 is around a 50 to 60 kilowatt hour battery. Um, So I take some of that energy from the solar panels and plug it straight into the Model 3. So because remember, with solar panel, uh, the calculation is when you produce the solar panel energy, when you produce the electricity from the solar panel, the best time to use it is then and there. I don't have battery storage. So for me, the daytime rates are about sort of 25 to 30 kilowatts an hour, let's say. It would be foolish to export that and then use the energy at night at 15 cents. It would just be foolish to do that. So I've programmed the car during summer months when it's at home 
to sort of take advantage of those um, uh, uh, electricity generation from my solar panels. And I've got a six kilowatt um, solar panel generation in my house, which I've installed. So I haven't even taken that into account. So this is assuming that all of the energy comes from the grid. Um, now, despite the grid use, is it actually environmentally friendly? I know this is a very controversial question. I don't want to go into the environmentally friendly, you know, greeny sort of business. Uh, I'm just looking at it from a finance point of view. I've looked at the evidence and um, look, environmentally, still an electric vehicle is going to be environmentally friendly um, compared to an ICE car because you've got to take into account the oil, the materials taken to produce the batteries, the uh, the sheet metal, the aluminium, all that sort of stuff. But you've got to take that into account for an ICE car as well, plus also the diesel fuel burning and, of course, the particulate material that it emits. But I don't want to go into the controversy of greenies. So just from an economic standpoint, it made complete sense for me to buy Tesla. But you can buy whatever EV you want if you can afford it. Uh, so if, if you can afford it, that is. So am I saying you should buy an EV? Well, it depends on your finances. I don't want you to go out and borrow money to buy a Tesla. That would be foolish. Remember, borrowing money to buy a car is foolish for personal use. So you need to be able to have the cash, in my opinion, humble opinion, rather than getting a personal loan or borrowing from your home or whatever it is to buy a car which depreciates in value. Okay, that is that is the primary sort of thought process. I'm just going through the cost of running the Model 3 compared to an ICE car. Now, hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea about the real cost of running an EV. And uh, if all goes well, I'll do a 12-month update to see how this fares with my driving uh, in 12 months time, which would be around sort of September, October-ish, okay? So that's the Tesla update. Now to the main topic. Sorry, I've taken a bit too long for this podcast episode and bear with me. The main topic is, since the COVID-19 crisis began, the Australian government has committed and passed over $200 billion in stimulus package to help Australian businesses and its employees and Australian citizens, right? So where will that money come from? And we're talking about quantitative easing, remember? Where would that money come from? If we had so much money in the first place, then why don't we spend it earlier for services like business booster packages, unemployment benefits, health, hospitals, etc., etc.? Now, before we go into where this money comes from, it's worthwhile to understand why Australia simply can't print money. So Scott Morrison, the PM Australia, can't tell you know the Mint to say, hey, you know what, why don't you just start printing $100 bills and print me $200 billion worth of those bills? Why is that not physically Well, it's physically possible, but why isn't that a good strategy? Printing money is what people think happens in these circumstances, but that's an incorrect assumption. I'm being very, very technical here. Printing money is not what happens. If we printed more money, we will end up in exactly the same situation prior to the printing of the money. So why is that? Therefore, the printing of the money doesn't work. So why is that? Let's use an example to find out why printing money is not a good idea. Let's imagine the government starts printing money, more and more money from today. This money then goes into circulation. The value of that money then declines because we have more money in circulation. 
This is the correlation between price and value. If you have more things circulating, then overall their value declines. Okay, so if you have heaps of land to sell, then the price of each land is not going to be high. If you only have one land to sell, the price of that land is going to be high. Supply and demand. So the value of money declines as a result of more money in circulation. This means inflation starts to rise. That is, the price of everything starts to jump up. Why is that? There is more money in circulation, so someone has to be benefiting, right? How is that possible? Well, this is how it's possible. The businesses start putting up their prices because there's more money in circulation. Customers tend to have more money to spend. So customers are willing to pay more for the products and services, which in turn allows businesses to put up their prices. Businesses may end up paying their employees more money, as employees will start expecting pay rises and otherwise may change to other companies. And guess what? Employees are also customers, and they have more money, and therefore businesses have products and services to buy, so customers are willing to pay more, and therefore businesses then say, well, if I get more money for the same product and services, I'm going to raise my prices. So what does this do to the economy? Great. Employers now have more money into their pockets. Employees have more money into their pockets, which means citizens and customers have more money in their pockets. Isn't this a good thing? Well, Initially, it is. Initially, everyone's hunky-dory. Everyone's happy. Some of us will save that money and invest it, but most of us will spend that money. And let's face it, some of us who save and invest that money will spend the extra money anyway. So, what do you spend it on? You spend it on products and services supplied by the same businesses. Remember, there's more money in circulation, which means more cash to burn. Guess what? If everyone runs out to spend money, there is more demand for products and services. Where there's more demand, the price goes up, and this means I need to fork out more money to buy the same goods and services. This is what happened to toilet paper in Australia and around the world, and that is crazy. Then the suppliers who supply raw materials to make products will also jack up their prices because, of course, they have employees to pay, they have expenses to pay. The flow-on effect of this is the products and services will remain the same, but the price will go up. So the net effect is back to square one. Is there a country in the world that has actually trialled this to see if it actually works in the 21st century? Yes, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe has already gone through this in the 21st century. How? In the 2000s, Robert Mugabe, the dictator, wanted to reward his allies and pay off his enemies, so he needed money. His policies have scared off investors, so business wasn't booming. Businesses were pulling out of Zimbabwe like left, right, and centre. So the economy wasn't doing well, and this led to unhappy citizens. Unemployment went up, poverty went up. So he needed a plan to get some money pronto. He needed to keep his allies and his enemies happy. So he found himself in a pinch. So started to print more money. The problem was this doesn't stir business activity, nor does it reduce unemployment. It doesn't do anything for the economy. There was no new investment because businesses have pulled out. So the economy was still struggling. 
The goods and services in Zimbabwe did not increase. They couldn't produce more goods and services because remember, business is pulled out. So in effect, you have more money in circulation because they've printed more money chasing the same amount of goods and services. This results in purchasing power of the Zimbabwean dollar becoming less and less and prices for the goods and services kept going higher and higher. This created inflation. Higher than predicted. Higher than ever imagined. But wait, there's more. Initially, prices rose 50% per year. Then this made prices rise even higher, which means government printed more money. By 2001, the inflation rate was 100% per year. By 2006, it was 1,000% per year. Money was being printed so quickly and therefore devaluing so quickly. So if you had money at 9am, it was worth much less by 4pm the same day. In fact, there was a famous story where the Swiss people print the money for Zimbabwe. By the time the aircraft flew from Switzerland to Zimbabwe with the money, the money was actually worthless. The government kept printing more and more money in high denominations. $100 million bills were common. $10 billion bills were common. Their highest denomination in 2008 was $100 trillion notes. At the height of the crisis, the inflation rate was 7.68 billion percent. That's billion with a B per month. That's insane. This is called hyperinflation. And that happened because the Zimbabwean government, Robert Mugabe, printed money. By 2008, the Zimbabwean dollar ceased to exist and the hyperinflation was over. Other countries like Yugoslavia in 94, China in 1949 and Germany in 1923 have trialled this as well. So that is why printing more money is a bad idea. So, coming back to the original question, how will Australia pay for the $200 billion in stimulus packages? Where is this money coming from? We need to revisit some basic principles we've already discussed in my earlier podcast episodes like inflation and bonds. So I'll just summarize that a little bit. The Reserve Bank is, remember, is not owned or operated by the government. It's independent. This is very, very important. The Reserve Bank is independent of the government and should always be kept this way. So here are the basic concepts. Number one, the Australian government is just like any other business, but on a much larger scale. Number two, it has income from taxation and revenue and outgoings like debt obligations and interest payments. If there is more money coming in than going out, we call this a budget surplus. This has nothing to do with debt. We have a lot of debt as a country, but more about this later. What I'm referring to is budget deficit. In other words, cash flow. When there is an economic downturn, there is a less business activity, which means less tax collections, which means less revenue for the government. When there is a huge economic activity, then the taxation and revenue is high, so we tend to have a budget surplus. And of course, with all this COVID-19 crisis, the economy is in the doldrums. Economy activity is low. People are losing their jobs. Spending power is less, which again breaks down the economy. Have you heard of this concept before when it comes to personal finance? Yes, the government has to spend less than what it earns. Spending is from providing products and services such as Centrelink and Medicare and health systems, etc. 
and earning is from taxation. So even the government has to use personal finance principles in order to fund it and help people of its country. That is us, you and me. So what about debt? So far, we've only talked about budget deficits and surpluses. What about debt? Well, when there is more outgoings than incomings, the government needs to balance the budget by borrowing money. For example, when you visit the doctor, the doctor charges an amount and the percentage is given back to you by Medicare. That's called the Medicare rebate. That is the government money. So where does that money come from if we didn't have any money in the first place? That money may come from debt Australian government has borrowed in order to fund that Medicare rebate, so to speak. So I'm simplifying it extremely, extremely, you know, making it as easy as possible, but hopefully it's starting to make sense. In 2006 and 2007, John Howard rode the mining boom and paid off Australia's debt. And since then, the debt has risen to about $373 billion. So how did John Howard pay off the debt? Because of the mining boom, companies paid more tax. Economy was doing well. People were spending more money, which means more taxes, earning more money, more taxes, earning more money, more taxes. And he used all that money, not he per se, but Australian government used all that money to pay off the debt. Now we've got a debt of about $373 billion. We're back in the red. Wow, that's massive. Well, it's actually massive in terms of absolute numbers, but it's actually only 19.2% of our GDP, which is the envy of the world. In comparison, the US and the UK have a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 80%. We're at 19.2%. So when the government says we have a huge debt problem, yeah, we do, but not as big as other countries. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't fix our debt problem, but that gives you some perspective. Prior to COVID and bushfire crisis in Australia, we were on track to have a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 18%. Now, it's 19.2%. So this may give you some perspective. So we would have paid down debt a little bit prior to the bushfire and COVID crisis, but not by that much, 1.2%, which again is a lot of money. I'm not downplaying that, but the bushfire and the COVID crisis hasn't had a huge impact so far in terms of our debt obligations. So how does the Australian government borrow money then? So where does this $200 billion come from? Well, there are some very powerful people in Canberra who manage Australian government debt. They're in the Office of Financial Management. Essentially, they act as brokers for the Australian government and any foreign lenders. And the Australian government can borrow from other countries, international businesses or any foreign entities. But how does that borrowing actually work and happen, and how does that translate into a $200 billion stimulus package? Well, these debt managers set up a government bond auction which entities can buy. Now, if you want to learn more about bonds, refer to What Are Bonds episode 53 to get more of an idea. Essentially, though, a government bond is the Australian government promising to repay the money it borrowed from you, and in return, they give you a contract which states so. Part of the repayment is the interest or the coupon payments, and principal, and there is a term date where the principal is also paid back. It's a guarantee. So when they set up bond auctions, entities can bid, and it's over within minutes. They bid the interest rates, and the debt managers acting on behalf of Australian government can accept or reject those bids. So this is how Australia raises or borrows money on a large scale. Now, back to the $200 billion in stimulus. Where does that come from? 
Well, the government can instruct the financial management office to offer more bonds, more frequently, and larger bonds which offer uh, and raise more funds this way. The Australian government is raising capital to pay for its expenditure. The expenditure, in this case, is $200 billion, and the capital is issuing government bonds. This is a bit like a private corporation raising capital for offering a share of their business via issuing shares. Does this mean the Australian government debt will go up? Yes, it will. We have about half a trillion dollars in existing government debt after all this, and this will likely cross a trillion dollar mark at some stage in the future, along with monthly interest payments, which stands at around 13 to $16 billion per month, which sounds like a lot, but it's only about 0.7% of our GDP, which isn't too bad, again, perspective, comparing it to the US and UK markets. So who buys these government's bonds? Well, 50% of those bonds issued by the Australian government through these debt managers is bought from overseas investors, foreign banks, central banks, investors, private corporations, big pension funds, etc. And the other 50% is from Australian entities and investors like banks, private corporations, sometimes individuals, and superannuation funds. Pension funds? Superannuation funds? That's right. All those super contributions which you've been putting into your superannuation, this gets invested by the super fund into stocks, businesses, bonds, cash, property. This is how it gets distributed. So part of that might go to purchasing of these government bonds. The Reserve Bank can also buy these government bonds. Essentially, they're pumping money into the economy, except they're not printing any more money. So no printing of money actually happens. And this is why I maintain that if you say you're printing money, that's actually not true. The Australian government is issuing bonds to raise capital. And that capital comes from 50% overseas investors and 50% of Australian investors. And that capital gets installed into the economy and the money goes into circulation. It's paper money. So why might this strategy or stimulus work? Well, the idea is if you use that money wisely and protect the economy and shield it from collapsing, when the COVID crisis gets over and done with, hopefully businesses will fire up again. And as a result, the economy gets back on track. That's the hope. And that's the idea behind it. Is this what quantitative easing is? When the economy falters due to a crisis, the RBA cuts interest rates. I've talked about this before. But remember, we're already at historic lows of 0.25%. There isn't much ammunition left for the RBA to do this. Well, they could go to zero, they could go to negative. Some European banks have done that. But I don't think the RBA want to do it. Therefore, the RBA buys government bonds and injects money into the Australian economy. This means government bond prices are pushed up, albeit slightly artificially. This means the yield on those bonds will start to reduce. Remember, yield is inversely proportional to the rate of rise of the value of the investment. If the price rises in bonds, their yield lowers. This means the reduction in funding costs to lenders, which means this forces lenders to also lower rates. Remember, RBA has already applied pressure to lenders to do this by reducing the interest rates to historic lows, so this adds to further pressure. 
Indirectly, the RBA is pressurising our lending institutions to lower their interest rates by issuing government, by buying government bonds, which are issued by debt managers, and by buying and bidding up the price of government bonds, the yield goes down and the cycle starts again. The government can't tell banks, or the Reserve Bank can't tell banks, to lend more money at lower rates. They can't force them to. We are a democratic, capitalistic society, which is why people get upset when banks don't pass on those lower interest rates. Banks are private corporations. They can do whatever they want. But the government and the RBA can apply pressure on the banks to do the right thing. And the way they apply pressure is by issuing these bonds and bidding up the prices and reducing their yield, and therefore the funding costs have reduced and the banks are forced to act. If the banks are not forced to act, then the other bank would. So if bank one does it, bank two will do it, and hopefully bank three and four would follow. Now that has happened mostly in the past, but that hasn't happened all the time. So this assumes that if lower interest rates, people borrow money, and of course when they borrow money, they spend, they invest, they create businesses, which spurs economic growth. So this is quantitative easing. The RBA and the government are using its powers to ease monetary policy by pumping extra funds into the economy in the hope it doesn't falter too much and therefore can get back on its feet once a crisis is over. In other words, the government is trying to build a bridge over a torrent of river and the torrent of river is the COVID-19 crisis and when we cross the bridge, hopefully everything will get back to normal in a relaxed atmosphere and therefore we're buying time to get businesses, people and their livelihoods to get across this bridge. America is doing the same thing. They're pumping $1.5 trillion into the economy. Um, And during the GFC, I think the Americans ended up pumping about $4 trillion into their economy. This measure is called quantitative easing. So that's about it for this episode. It's a slightly bigger episode. Apologies, 41 minutes. Thanks for listening. And thank you and shout out um, to all the people that have asked me questions about the Model 3. And some of you have already asked me about the um, quantitative easing and where's this money going to come from. So shout out for that. Remember, if you like this podcast channel, if you find it useful, please share it with friends and family. And thank you to the people that have asked me questions on castbox.fm. Spotify or on Facebook uh, and also provided me with topic suggestions. I do have a Facebook page which is Dev Raga Facebook page. Share this channel with family and friends and share the Facebook page as well. Um, I'm currently on Castbox, Spotify, Google Podcast or devraga.com and remember always pay yourself first 20% after tax income. That is the premise and follow those five easy steps to get yourself started on the right track. This is Devaraga Personal Finance, episode 71. And as always, and make sure you stay safe.